As you know, we continue on in our study of the Gospel of John. So I invite you to turn there with us, John chapter 1. John chapter 1, it's going to be today, verses 35 through 51. We're going to be looking at the first disciples. If you look around the room this morning, you will see that Jesus saves all kinds of people from all different kinds of places, from all different kinds of walks of life. He doesn't scour the earth for those who have graduated with honors from the Naval Academy and just the best and the brightest and only the people who have a rich family history or who have a certain income level. He doesn't look for any of those things. He looks for people who he's going to be glorified in their life. He saves all kinds of people. There's a Christian rapper. You probably didn't expect me to go here. There's a Christian rapper who we were, Gabby and I were actually talking about in Fredericksburg recently. He's a little rough around the edges. You would look at him and think he must belong to a gang. He has tattoos all over the place, tattoo on his neck. Some of his music is a little rough around the edges. But God has radically changed him and saved him from a gang, from gang life, from committing suicide. He was attempting to commit suicide, mutilating himself even. And God radically transformed this man and is now doing the work that many people would not want to do. He's actually going to different ghettos around the country and preaching the gospel. Because he grew up in that environment. That's where he's from. And he knows, he has felt charged not to make a big name for himself. Because you can make a big name for yourself even in Christian music. For a long time he actually lived homeless. Because he didn't want to enjoy all of the life. All that, you know, being a famous singer or performing artist would give you. Instead, he just gave his life to ministry. And I think about that guy. And yes, he's rough around the edges. And yes, he's covered in tattoos. And yes, he's got a way of talking that probably is a little foreign to most of us. But God saved that man. And he's using him to save other people just like him. I think about the mighty power of God to save And it does not matter where you come from. It does not matter how bad you think you are. We are all sinners. We are equally sinful at the foot of the cross. And Christ saves his own simply because he chooses to. I think that that is just the most amazing thing about our God. Perhaps not the the most amazing, but definitely one of the things that stirs our heart most Often, to think about your own life. What did the Lord save you from? Perhaps you don't have one of these wild testimonies of wild living before Christ saved you. Think of God's grace in that. 
that he didn't create you to have this sort of life where you would ever even experience those things. Perhaps God got a hold of you at an early age and you have a so-called boring testimony. Praise the Lord for that. That he saves all kinds of people. He doesn't even only save the alcoholic and the gangbanger. He also saves the person who was raised with a silver spoon in their mouth and had a nice family. Praise God for his saving work in our lives. As we turn to our text today, we're going to see how Christ saves people. That he does save regular old folk from any old place. And how he uses these people once he has saved them. So if you would, please stand with us as we read our text this morning. It's John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. This is the word of the living God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. Father, as we turn now to your word and seek to glean principles and um, different examples that we can learn from in your scriptures, I pray that you would help us to do so. I pray that you would help me to draw out those principles and those examples so that we could model our life after that. I pray that you would Use this time to edify your people and to glorify yourself through me, Lord, that what I speak wouldn't be from man's invention, but that it would be from you, Lord. It would be truth that would edify your people. We pray for this in your name. Amen. You be seated. 
this is a bit of a side note, but whenever you study Scripture or just read Scripture, there are some things that are called descriptive texts, and there are some things that are called prescriptive texts. What does that mean? Prescriptive text is prescribing, if you will, something that you ought to do. We've talked about imperatives and indicatives. An imperative is a command that we are to follow. And you'll see that at great length in the epistles. First and Second Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, etc. You'll find plenty of imperatives. This is how you are to live. And throughout the Gospels, we have to remember that there is a different aim. They're not writing to churches, teaching them about Christian living. They're talking about the life of Christ. And so we find uh, many descriptive texts full of indicative verbs. In other words, these are just teaching us, telling us what is going on. So this is a narrative, as you could tell. It's simply telling a story of an account. So whenever you read passages like this, it's very easy. Probably our natural inclination is to say, okay, cool, something happened. Some people said some things and they moved on. And then we just kind of glance over and gloss over principles and examples that we can learn from, that we can draw principles from what is going on. So they're describing something that's happening, and there are examples in what is being described as happening that you and I can learn from and benefit from. So whether it be in the Old Testament or the Gospels or Acts or wherever else in Scripture, always be reading with that in mind. Okay, is this prescribing something for me to do and apply immediately in my life? Or is this describing something that's going on in which case, what can I learn from this? And that's the kind of text we have before us today, as you can tell, is a descriptive text. It's describing events that took place, namely in the calling of the first disciples. As you know, we've been pounding this drum, and we will continue to do so, that the purpose of John's gospel is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that He's the Son of God, and that by believing that you would have eternal life. And we've talked about uh, the witnesses that we were introduced to in the prologue, verses 1 through 18, and namely John the Baptist, how he was not the light. He was a man sent from God, not the light, but sent as a witness to bear witness about the light. Guess why? So that all might believe through him. And here we see that happening, don't we? We begin here by looking, verses 35 through 39, focusing on the unnamed disciple and Andrew. As we looked at the testimony of John the Baptist last week, we saw in that passage a firsthand look at how John acknowledges that he was not the light, but he was bearing witness about the light. We saw that actually happening in real time. And here again today, we saw, see John the Baptist is doing what? He's bearing witness about the light. There's a particular day. John is standing there with two of his disciples. He looks and sees Jesus as he's walking by and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. We've heard him bear witness about the light to the delegation of the Jews who had come questioning his identity and authority. And now he's bearing witness of Christ in front of his, his own disciples. And it's the same message, isn't it? 
He hasn't changed it. It's the same message that we saw last week. Behold the Lamb of God. But the words this time fall on ears that are much better prepared to hear this message. As His disciples have undoubtedly been hearing the baptizer teach at length about the coming one. They've heard the testimony that the one who sent Him to baptize with water told John that he would see the Spirit descend on a particular individual and the one upon whom the Spirit came and descended and remained, that that is going to be the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. They've heard John teach about the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world and all of the allusions to this in the Old Testament beginning as far back as the account of Abraham telling Isaac that the Lord would provide for himself a lamb. Surely he's taught them of the Passover lamb, that this pointed to Christ, that the sacrificial system pointed to Christ. And of course, Isaiah 53, where we see the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 is described as a lamb led to slaughter. They've been taught well by this man who is sent from God And now has come the moment that they've been waiting for. The Lamb of God is walking right in front of them. John has been telling them over and over again that he's coming. I'm the the forerunner. He's coming after me. Be on the lookout. Be aware. He's coming. He's coming. And now is the day. There he is. Imagine being one of his disciples. What a moment this must have been for them. The one they've been following, who has been baptizing countless people, preparing the way for the arrival of the Messiah, saying, there he is. This is really happening. We haven't been following John in vain. He wasn't just a crazy man out in the wilderness. He was really the forerunner, and that's really the Messiah. As John bears witness about the light, the proclamation of the light, has its intended effect on these two disciples. Remember, he was a man sent from God. He was not the light, but he was sent as a witness to bear witness about the light. We've seen all of that. But what we haven't seen is so that all might believe through him until now. Verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. John was a man sent from God, not the light. And here he is bearing witness about the light. And some are believing. This teaches us an important lesson about the Christian faith. That the primary intended means of getting the gospel to people so that they might be saved is preaching. And it's quite unfortunate that we live in a day and age when preaching has been either completely devalued or so watered down that it is no longer actually preaching. It's just a man in skinny jeans sitting on the stage with a table next to him, and he's just talking to you like a good old pal. Certainly there's room for that in actual personal interaction and conversation, but that's not God's intended preaching. It's not the only means, of course, This is not the only means of getting the gospel to people that they would believe. But we see all throughout Scripture, especially the New Testament, that it is absolutely the primary means. 
John had been preaching repentance and the need for a lamb. The disciples sensed their need for the lamb and their their need for repentance. Undoubtedly, they've been baptized in John's baptism of repentance. So they have acknowledged that what John is preaching is true. And now John is preaching the lamb. And what happened? They followed the lamb. The preaching of John the Baptist had its intended effect. And how simple this is, that they heard of the lamb and they followed after him. The word here for follow can be used in a very specific sense. It can be used in the sense of meaning following after as a disciple, following after to pattern their life after him. And it can also be used in just the general sense of walking behind somebody, following after somebody. Based on what we've come to know about John so far already in this gospel, I would say that there, are, there is likely multiple layers of meaning here in that the disciples were literally walking behind him, following after Jesus. But also, he's intending to express a little bit more that they were following Jesus to become his disciples. And isn't it interesting that after this, John the Baptist slips out of view. We're not going to hear about John the Baptist again until chapter 3. He has served his purpose. And he doesn't put up a fight here when his disciples are leaving him, does he? He doesn't ask them where are they going. He doesn't beg and plead that they would stay so he doesn't lose followers. No, he knows this was my whole purpose was to point you to the light. There he is. Leave me. I'm not the light. Don't follow me anymore. There he is. Go to him. That's truly what all ministers should do. Is to say, you're not following me. I'm pointing you to Jesus and follow him. The baptizer knew they were supposed to leave. And he's not interested in keeping them around. He wants to faithfully serve his ministry. Verse 38 tells us that Jesus turns around, sees them following after them. So we see there is a literal following after. He asks them, what are you seeking? It's another simple phrase that's certainly pregnant with meaning. In reality, this is the soul-piercing question that Christ asks us all through his word. What are you seeking? Are you seeking the comforts of this life? An early retirement, perhaps, to enjoy your riches and see the world. Perhaps you're seeking safety, ease in this life, friends, a busy social calendar, status, a promotion. You want to be known in this world. There are many things that we can seek this side of glory, but what are you seeking? Just the same way that Jesus asked those disciples, that question comes to our doorstep. What are you seeking? See, at that time, they could have been seeking him for a number of reasons. Perhaps they wanted a healing, to be healed from something. Perhaps they wanted to see a miracle. Do something cool. You're the Messiah. Do something awesome. You're the Messiah. Are you going to overthrow Rome now? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel and restore us to national prominence? 
That's what we're seeking after, Jesus. That could have been what happened here. But Jesus asks, what are you seeking? And their answer is essentially, you. Is that your answer? When that question pierces through our hearts, what are you seeking after? Is your answer, Christ, I want more of him. I want to know him. I want to be like him. I want to be nearer to him. That's all I want in life. I could be a teller. I could be working at the cash register at all subs for the rest of my life for all I care. I just want him. I just want to know Jesus. All of my friends and my family could abandon me because I'm following after him. But all I want is Jesus. That's what I'm seeking. Let's not kid ourselves and assume that because we find ourselves in a church on the Lord's Day, that this is proof enough that we are seeking Christ. For many churchgoers go to church and never seek Christ. It is entirely possible to go to church and leave your heart at home. What are you seeking this morning? The answer will be obvious, not by your actual response, but in your life. Your life answers the question, what are you seeking? How did the disciples answer? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? This seems like a non-answer at first glance, and maybe even just a weird response. But it's as though they are saying, how much time do you have? We couldn't answer that question right here. We have so many questions. Think about it. John the Baptist has been teaching these people, preaching about the coming one, the coming Lamb of God, the Messiah, who is the Son of God. They've been hearing about this. They're God-fearing Jews. And here's the Messiah. What are you seeking? I, I, I couldn't even answer that right now. Do we, can we go somewhere private and talk? We have so many questions for you. Can we please go where you are? Where are you staying? How much time do you have? In essence, again, their answer is, we're seeking you. Verse 39, Jesus' invitation. He said to them, come and you will see. Don't you just love this response? He clearly knows their heart. He knows what they are after. And he invites them to see for themselves. Truly, we have a come and see kind of faith. Truly, Christ extends this invitation to all who will have him. Can he really be that great? Is he really going to forgive me for my sins? Is his grace really that powerful? Jesus says, come and see. Surely this is the way that he answers the prayer of those who des desire with all of their heart to know him more. Lord, how can I know you more? Come and see. Lord, how can I grow closer to you? How can I live the way you want me to live? Come and you will see the word who became flesh. Think of it. 
The Word who became flesh invites you and I into an intimate relationship with the triune God. Let us not overlook that or take that lightly. The disciples accept his invitation here. They go to where he is staying. And we're told that they stayed with him that day for it was about the tenth hour. You see, the Jews reckon time differently than you and I do. They would see night as sundown to sun up, approximately 12 hours from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And they would see daytime as sun up to sundown, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So we have these 12-hour blocks of time. The 10th hour of the day would be around 4 p.m. in the afternoon. So they likely would end up staying with Christ that night because we're told the next day of things that went on and took place. Imagine, though, you have the opportunity to speak face-to-face with the long-awaited Messiah, God incarnate, wouldn't you too stay at least the rest of that day asking him questions, getting to know him? Wouldn't you speak long into the night with the Messiah, the Son of God in the flesh? Of course you would. And it would be a safe assumption to say that these disciples likely took advantage of every minute that they had with the coming one. Then we're introduced to Simon Peter, verses 40 through 42. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. We see Andrew set an example for us of personal evangelism. John the Apostle finally identifies one of these two disciples for us, and he tells us that his name is Andrew. He's the brother of Simon Peter. We still don't have the name of the other disciple, but it's quite likely that it's actually John, the author of this gospel. We know that John doesn't ever actually name himself in this gospel, so it wouldn't be surprising if this other disciple who is never named or never mentioned again is John. Further, we have great detail that he's giving us. He knows what time of day it is. He knows the questions that were asked. He has great intimate information indicating that he was probably a first-hand witness because he was probably the other disciple. But at any rate, the best we can do is guess about it. But we do know that the other disciple is Andrew, and that's who John focuses on. Verse 41 tells us that he first found his own brother, It's a way of saying the first thing that he went and did after meeting the Messiah and speaking with him, likely staying the night with him, speaking long into the night, the first thing that he goes and does is goes to find his brother Simon. He was clearly excited about his interaction with Jesus and he had to go and tell someone. So who does he tell? His family, his brother Simon Peter. Most likely, James and John and Simon and Andrew were all lifelong friends as they grew up in the same small town. They were probably all disciples of John the Baptist. These four would form a sort of inner circle amongst the twelve disciples, often being mentioned together with Jesus in some of the most 
impactful, intimate moments. But of the four, Peter stands out as the obvious leader of the pack. We all know that. While Andrew is, is often in the shadows. We actually don't even know a lot about Andrew as the scriptures simply don't give us that much to work with. But we do know from this passage at least that Andrew was a devout man who loved the Lord. Certainly they follow the baptizer because they love the Lord and they want to follow him. They have a desire to see the Messiah. And when Andrew heard the baptizer point out the Messiah, he doesn't wait. He goes and follows him without hesitation. But as any person who has truly been changed by the work of Christ, he doesn't want to follow Christ alone. He especially doesn't want to keep this life-changing news from the people who are closest to him, namely his own brother. What an example we find in the largely unknown life of Andrew. We learn that Christ doesn't only use the Peters of the world who are loud and out front and ready to take charge, but he also uses the one who are content to live and serve in obscurity, never really being seen or known. Surely most of the church universal is made up of Andrews. Christ has gifted his church with some of the MacArthur's and the Spurgeons and Calvins of history. And they have a tremendous impact. And they will be well known. But he's also gifted his church with Andrews, who will be largely unknown, but whose lives will have untold impact. After all, think of it, it's Andrew who brings Peter to Jesus. Even though Peter's the leader, it's Andrew who brings Peter to Jesus. Therein, we find the importance of personal evangelism. The Lord uses preaching as his primary means to spread the gospel and save people. And he also uses the personal witness of those who have been saved to save others. What does Andrew say that has such an impact on Peter that he decides to come to Christ? Five words. We have found the Messiah. This also, by the way, gives us some indication into the disciples' answer, what it meant whenever Jesus asks, what are you seeking? He then goes to say, we have found the Messiah. Put those together and you can see that's what they're seeking, is the Messiah. But that's what he tells Peter. We have found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. Surely, my friends, this is not too difficult for us to replicate. When you are excited about and captivated by something, you share it. You talk about it. You don't hide it. You can't wait to tell people about it. After all, this is, this is the first thing that Andrew did. It says, first, Andrew went and told somebody. This is the first thing that he went to do. Evidence that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good for yourself is that you want to tell people about it. You want to share it. You want to broadcast it. Spurgeon said it this way. Have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you are not saved yourself. Be sure of that. May we pray 
that the Lord gives us a burden for the lost. Hearts that break and cannot rest because our loved ones, especially those closest to us who are not in Christ, that they are going to hell. May that be a real pressing need upon our minds and our hearts. May we be far more interested in the condition of the souls of our loved ones than whether or not they get that job they're hoping to get. Whether or not they get that home that they want. Whether or not they have friends and comfort of life. But that we would care so much more about their soul. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Jesus displays his omniscience here, doesn't he? In knowing who Simon is and knowing what Simon will be. He looks at Simon, he sizes him up, he speaks in such a way that indicates he's already acquainted with Simon. And then he changes his name. Changing someone's name like this was a sign of authority. He's showing that he has authority over Simon in renaming him. But it's the name that's of great significance. Many of you probably are familiar with the fact that Simon is shown throughout the Gospels to be well acquainted with the taste of his foot as he is always sticking his foot in his mouth. He speaks out of turn. He's brash. He's hot-headed. This is who he is. Do you think that for just one moment Jesus didn't know that? Do you think that Jesus is surprised once he comes to know Simon? Wow, this guy's got a, a hot head. I didn't, I didn't think about this. Maybe I picked the wrong guy. No, of course he knew this about Simon. So Jesus tells him, this is who you are. You are Simon. You're the hothead. You're brash. You speak out of turn. You're a little rough around the edges. But this is who you will be. You will be a rock. A rock is stable. It's sure. It's steadfast. All the things that Peter wasn't. Remember when he jumps out of the boat to go out to Jesus? And he's so excited, he even is walking on water for a moment. What would that have been like? But this is Peter. He's jumped out of the boat. Peter runs out onto the water after Christ. And then realizing that he didn't really think this through, looks around and sees the storm and the waves. He sinks. What does Jesus tell him? Oh, you have little faith. He makes the great confession that Jesus is the Christ in Matthew 16. And then he follows that up by being called Satan by Jesus a few verses later. It's probably one of my favorite passages. He swears his undying allegiance to Jesus on the night that Jesus is betrayed, only to do what? To deny Jesus not once, not twice, but three times before the rooster crows. Simon is anything but sure and steady. He is not steadfast at all. But such is the work of God in the human heart that he can take the worst of the worst, the most unstable, the most unreliable, the most invaluable, and he can change them and use them to turn the world upside down. Because once we get to Acts, 
we see Peter, the rock. We see Peter preaching the paint off the walls. We see Peter preaching the first Christian sermon and 3,000 souls coming to Christ. Right now, you're unstable, short-fused Simon, but you will be sure and steady as a stone, Peter. I'm sure that if we pass the microphone around this morning, each of you could tell of who you were before Christ. You could tell us and bear testimony to who and what you are now that you are in Christ Jesus. And such is the mighty power of our God. We move on now to look at the other pair of disciples that Jesus calls first Philip in verse 43. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip is an interesting character, and his interaction here with Jesus only adds to the intrigue. Whereas John and Andrew were directed to Jesus by John the Baptist, and Peter was brought to Jesus by his brother Andrew, here we see Jesus seems to purposefully go to Galilee with Philip in mind. The author doesn't give us any indication as to why Jesus decided to go to Galilee simply that he purposed to do so, and he found Philip. This is an explicit statement of the sovereignty of God in salvation. We know that anyone who comes to God has been drawn by God. Jesus will say himself later in the gospel, you did not choose me, I chose you. We know that no one even can come to Christ unless the Lord draws him, as Jesus will say in chapter 6, that no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. But we also see that God uses a variety of means to draw people to himself. Whether it be the preaching of a preacher, the witness of a family member, or God himself spontaneously drawing a person to himself, God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. This is an explicit example of that. As Philip is not brought to Christ, Christ goes to Philip. We don't even have lengthy interaction of any kind, do we? We don't have anything. We just have Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip, and he said to Philip, follow me. And he does. And that's it. Surely it's safe to say that God had already been working the ground of Philip's heart, preparing him for this moment when salvation would come to him. Philip is so sure and ready that this Jesus who is coming to him and telling him to follow is the Christ, that the next thing that John records for us is Philip going to find Nathanael. So he didn't even deliberate. He didn't even wonder, well, who is this guy? Evidently, something had been happening in the heart of Philip. Probably the same could be said about Nathanael. Verse 45 Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Here is another example of personal evangelism, isn't it? And this is so important, I think, for us today in the church because many of us are either fearful of evangelizing the people around us or we think that it's a person who is an evangelist's job. I don't share the gospel. That's what evangelists do. That's what preachers do. 
That's what missionaries do. No, my friend, it's what people who have been saved do. People who have been saved by Christ tell people about Christ. Not only should we reach our family members like Andrew does with Simon, but here we find friends as well. In fact, oftentimes you can have more extensive gospel conversations with people that you already have a personal relationship with. And why? Because you have a major advantage. They trust you. They trust you and they know you. And hopefully, there's enough love on your side. Love enough to tell them the gospel. I'm a firm believer that God saves all kinds of people from all walks of life with the intended purpose of you telling everyone around you about it. I am convinced that that is what God does. He doesn't ever plant trees in a garden hoping that it does not bear fruit. Do you understand? He plants a tree in the garden with the explicit purpose that it will bear fruit. And one of the ways that you and I bear fruit is by bringing people to Jesus. Isn't that what we are seeing? Andrew goes and finds Simon, says, we have found the Messiah, and he brings him to Jesus. He brings him to Jesus. And then what happens now? He, now Philip goes to Nathaniel and says, we found him. We found the Messiah. We found him, the one who Moses and the law talks about and the prophets talk about. And he brings them to Jesus. Are we doing the same thing? Is a question that arises from this text. Philip says that they have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. In other words, as we talked about this morning or as Jacob did in Sunday school, all of their Bible at this time was about Jesus. All of the scriptures spoke of the coming Messiah, whether it was the law, the Psalms, or the prophets. Nathaniel knew immediately who Philip was talking about and that the Messiah was long awaited. But he couldn't fathom that the Messiah would be coming from such a nowhere kind of place as Nazareth. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Probably, historians say that Bethsaida was actually a neighboring town of Nazareth, and we're told that we're in Bethsaida. So probably Nazareth was a, a neighboring town, and they were both small towns, both rather insignificant. So there was a real possibility of just some rivalry going on. I remember growing up, we thought there was a rivalry between Lubbock and Amarillo. Perhaps there still is. We here in little insignificant level, Lubbock would think that we're so much better than Amarillo. I don't know why. I have no earthly idea why. But it's city pride, as we're probably seeing here. He's probably saying, Nazareth, why would he come from Nazareth? That little nothing place? And what does Philip say? Come and see. I just want to reiterate the simplicity of the personal evangelism that we are finding, seeing on display in this passage. Nothing particularly profound or high and lofty is being said. It's very, very simple. Hey, we found the Messiah. Come and see. We found the Messiah. Come and see. 
So often, we make evangelizing our friends and families more difficult than it needs to be. And we put up all of these roadblocks in front of our own self. By all means, we need to study the Word. You need to know the Gospel. You need to know these things. No doubt about it. But surely, each one of us could say, I have found the Messiah. I have found the Christ. He has changed my life. Come and see Him. Come and see. Come and see for yourself. I would encourage you that you not allow your own lack of knowledge to stop you from telling your loved ones what you do know. You do know that God is real. You do know that hell is real. You do know that Christ saves sinners. You know those things. Tell them that and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. We have found the Messiah. Come and see. After all, whether or not your family member gets saved does not ultimately rely upon your perfect gospel presentation. Did you know that? It doesn't actually rely on you having every single answer about justification or you being able to tell them if you believe in superlapsarianism or infralapsarianism. They're not going to have any idea. You might not even know what that is. You don't need to know any of that stuff. You just need to go say, Jesus is real and he will save you. Turn to him today. We see again Jesus' omniscience in verse 47 to 48. Jesus sees Nathanael coming toward him. Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael says, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus displays once again his omniscience that he is all Knowing, I know many of us in here think that we are all-knowing, but only Jesus is all-knowing. He's not met Nathaniel yet, but he is already well acquainted with who Nathaniel is. How could these things be? He says of Nathaniel that he is an Israelite indeed. It's not a very common word, Israelite. It's only found in the nine times in the New Testament. More often we see the term Jew. But Jesus is telling all who hear, but especially Nathaniel, that he is a true Jew, a true Israelite. You see, during that time, there were a lot of people throughout Israel's history who trusted in their national heritage. They trusted in the fact that they were a child of Abraham and they could trace their bloodline all the way back. And that's what they trusted in for their righteousness. But they weren't true Israelites, though they were born of Israel. Though they lived in Israel, though they were an Israelite by national heritage, they were not a true Israelite. They were not a true Jew. Romans 2.28 says it this way, For one is a Jew, for no one is a Jew, who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. You see, it's always been, even in the Old Covenant, even under the law of Moses, it has not been ever about external works. It has always been about a matter of the heart. And that's what Jesus is saying here is, here is somebody who actually follows the law, not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law from the heart. This is a true Jew. Nathaniel is a walking example of what Paul is saying. He's not trusting in what's outward. He's a Jew inwardly. How does Nathaniel react? 
How do you know me? It's not evident yet that he has come to see for himself that this is the Messiah. He's caught off guard by how Jesus of Nazareth could possibly know this about himself. You're from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? How do you have this information about me? The thing he didn't realize is that Jesus knows everything. That Jesus is God. Jesus knew Nathanael's heart before Nathanael ever walked up. Jesus had already searched Philip's heart. And my friends, the same is true today with you and I. We think that we can hide our hearts from Jesus, but we can't. We think that we can hide our sins from him, our motivations, our thoughts. We cannot hide any of it because he is the all-seeing, all-knowing God. Jesus answers him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Doesn't that sound just so bizarre? What, What does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. I'm not sure. Don't know. I couldn't tell you. Nobody knows. Every single commentator I read has a different opinion. And that's what we're left with, is thoughts and opinions and conjecture. I think that this is what's going on, this, that, or the other. Here's my thought, my take, is that fig trees in the Old Testament were often associated with the home. And it was often a place that you would go out and pray and study under the shade of the fig tree. Likely, some kind of interaction has taken place under the fig tree between Nathaniel and the Lord. Perhaps he's confessed his sin before him. The reason I say that is because he said that there is no deceit in this man. So perhaps he has done something and he's confessing and bearing his heart before the Lord. I don't know. But something is so profound about what that fig tree and what happened in that fig tree that Nathaniel knows immediately Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel because only God could possibly know that. Only God could possibly know what happened under that fig tree. John's purpose in writing this gospel, remember, is so that you would believe this same very truth, that He is the Son of God. The last thing that we see here is that Jesus saying, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You're going to see greater things than these. In other words, you haven't seen anything yet, Nathaniel. Yes, I'm omniscient. You've seen my omniscience, but you haven't seen anything yet. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is a reference to Jacob's dream in Genesis 28. In that passage, Jacob has been traveling for some time. He gets tired. He finds a place to rest. He grabs a rock, puts it under his head as a pillow. You know you're very tired when you sleep on a rock. He falls asleep, and that's where it picks up in Genesis 28, 12, that he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder, pay attention, a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending ascending and descending on it. It speaks of God using all the power of heaven to ensure in that passage, it was speaking of God using all of the power of heaven to ensure that he will bring the promise that he made to Abraham to pass, to give them the land. So what does that have to do with Jesus? 
Notice that the ladder or staircase that he dreams about is set up on the earth. And it's connected to heaven. It goes up into heaven. What does that image put into your mind? Perhaps a bridge? A connection of some sort? Perhaps a mediator? Who would that be, my friends? That would be Christ. And what does Jesus say here in our passage? He takes that passage and appropriates it to himself. He doesn't say you're going to also see the same ladder that Jacob saw, you'll see a similar vision. What does he say? You're going to see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's telling us this text is about me. Because ultimately, all the power of heaven is with Christ. And it's through Christ. All of the power of heaven has been used, utilized, to ensure that sinners can be saved. Jesus Christ is the ladder. Jacob goes on in that passage in Genesis 28 to say, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. My friends, that's heartbreaking. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't even know. Do you know who is the temple of God today? It's you and I. If the Spirit dwells within us, we have communion with the Lord everywhere and anywhere. So many times people can go to church waiting to feel goosebumps and tears come down their face. And if they didn't, God wasn't there. My friend, surely the Lord is in this place and you don't know it. He's here now. He resides within each one of us. We don't need to wait for a glory cloud to come down. You don't need to wait for goosebumps. You don't need to wait for anything. You can know by faith that the Scriptures tell you that you are the temple of the living God. If the Spirit dwells within you, shouldn't that then change everything about our life? And shouldn't that then change our experiences here at church? That surely the Lord is in this place. Do you believe that? You should. Let's stand. John has shown us that Jesus saves all different kinds of people from all different walks of life and that when he does so, that we should go and bring others to come and see for themselves that this is indeed the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world.